Hello and welcome to LBB's Open House, our podcast on how to build brands better. I'm Sujita, the co-founder of LBB. On the Open House podcast, I have candid conversations with founders, CXOs, and investors behind India's most compelling enterprises. In each episode, I deep dive into a breadth of topics with my guests, from finding product market fit to hiring, scaling teams, finding the right distribution channels, and more. Today, I'm in conversation with Sakshi Chopra. But before we get into this episode, I'm just letting you all know that Open House is recorded as a live session. In each session, my conversation with our guest is followed by audience Q and A's. In fact, you'll hear my colleague Astha taking these up. You can catch the next live session by signing up on the LBB app. Before we get into this episode, letting you all know that Open House is recorded as a live session. In each session, my conversation with our guest is followed by audience Q and A's, and you'll hear my colleague Astha taking these up. You can catch the next live session by signing up on the LBB app. Now, getting back to my guest, Sakshi Chopra is a principal at Sequoia Capital India. She focuses on growth stage companies and has advised on investments across a range of consumer, direct-to-consumer, and fintech companies, including Five Star Business Finance, Indigo Paints, Wakefit, Faces, Go Colors, Healthcard, Paperboat, Pira, and more. What I enjoyed the most about our chat was a number of examples and references Sakshi gave, from Paperboat's positioning centered around nostalgia to how Mama Earth grew into a brand with over a hundred crore turnover. You'll hear about how some of India's most fascinating consumer plays went from zero to one and are now treading the path from one to hundred by finding their business moats. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. Thank you so much for doing this, Sakshi. We really, really appreciate uh, your time. Um, and I thought I'd start with uh, with just learning a little bit more about you. How did you get into investing, and in, and why consumer products as a category? Uh, no, thanks for having me on on this chat. Uh, pleasure to be with you guys. Um, so I started. Uh, incidentally, I'm almost completing ten years at Sequoia Capital this week, and uh, I started my journey way back. <laughs> Thank you. So when I started my journey way back, uh, investing was, I would say, a new industry in India. It was, uh, there were very few funds around. And I was, uh, I was uh, earlier with Deutsche Bank, uh, Sequoia. Uh, I knew a few folks at Sequoia. They got in touch with me and they said, hey, you know, we're trying to build uh, our business in India. And we're also trying to build uh, competency and capability around pipeline development. So do you think this there could be something for you to do? And, you know, why don't you give it, give it a thought? And uh, it was more a very, it was a very fluid conversation. And over six months, uh, you know, we got to know each other well. We tried to understand, like, how I can come on board and add value. And finally, the journey began, uh, you know, in, in July of uh, 2010. Uh, so that's when I got started uh, in with my investing career at Sequoia. It's been, I would say, a dream run for me. Um, Sequoia is a, is a very, very, I would say, premier platform and extremely proud to be a part of it. Yeah, and you guys are crushing it at your content marketing right now, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to make like a tweet saying uh, if there's any one fund that everyone should learn content marketing from, it's probably Sequoia. Because uh, you guys just have this way of riling everyone up, right? Which is amazing. You're totally right. Fantastic company uh, and VC to be with. Yeah, and I think all the credit goes to uh, our colleagues in the US who share a lot of wisdom because they've been in business since uh, 1970s. So, you know, the India team is uh, learning a lot from them. And of course, we have a very capable uh, team here on the ground who also helps with a lot of our uh, PR activities. 
So a decade of, uh, you know, a venture capital, a decade of investing, uh, what are the things that you've sort of seen change? Because you've probably seen every kind of company, you know, come to your doorstep and pitch to you. Uh, and I'm sure you've also seen trends, you know, come and go, right? Uh, uh, what, what's the, I mean, if you to reflect on the decade, uh, what's it been like? And what have been the big sort of, you know, changes uh, uh, internally and externally? I would say one of the biggest changes has just been ability for companies to scale. Back then, uh, it was just so hard to build a consumer brand. And uh, one of the reasons for that was because, you know, there were none of the horizontals around at that point. And today, I think a world, the world has really changed. So a lot of consumer brands uh, you see around today don't need the classic, uh, you know, distribution, which uh, some of the traditional companies had built over, you know, the many 15, 20, 30 years of existence in India. Today, they can go online, get themselves listed. If they have a great product, uh, you know, they automatically start to see traction overnight. Uh, I think the second thing that has changed is just the uh, founder ecosystem. Back then, it wasn't very normal and I would say common to see a lot of professionals stepping out of their uh, very, very lucrative jobs to be an entrepreneur. But today, I think that's exceptionally common. We have, um, you know, Varun from Mama Earth, who spent uh, many years with, uh, you know, very large MNC organizations. He finally stepped out because, you know, he had a desire to be a founder. We didn't see a lot of that happening back in the day in 2010. I think we see a lot more of it today. So that's also something that has changed. And I think just the talent pool in India has expanded. It's, uh, you know, you can today attract great talent um, and build a great team around you. That was very hard to come by uh, back in the day again because people were did not know the value of ESOP and uh, startups were still a very, I would say, uh, unknown animal. So very few risk takers around, very few people convinced that, you know, the startup has a life of its own. I think some of these factors have changed. It's just made our life a lot easier and, a far, and far more interesting. I can imagine, uh, you know, you spoke about um, a lot of founders leaving their sort of, you know, professional life and, and wanting to start up, right? Um, I think a related question to that is, um, and I can give my own example, but but I think a lot of founders don't really wake up saying, this is my time, this is my opportunity, this is my market size, and this is what I'm going to go after, right? It's it's, it's sometimes starts as serendipitous, uh, you know, uh, sort of opportunities, which then you scratch the surface off and dig into, and then you figure out what your market is, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, could you talk a little bit about you know how you uh, how you perhaps even seen companies evolve as a founder? How does one take something that you may have serendipitously started or an opportunity that you may have walked into uh, and really make a go of it, right? And and go from sort of idea to actually finding product market fit. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe let me talk about Beta. You know, we met Ankur. Um, actually, Ankur uh, reached out to the firm a bunch of times. Uh, I think it was back in 2013 and 14. At that point, we couldn't make it work. Uh, and then again, in 2015, we decided that, uh, you know, at that point, like he had, uh, he had a real idea. He, he had launched a young brand. He said that, you know, um, I think today's millennial doesn't want to drink the beer that their dads and granddads have grown up drinking. And uh, also, you know, there was, um, there was a dearth of, I would say, um, a lack, or rather a lack of a variety of brands. So if you went into a bar, the only options you had were Kingfisher and maybe a few important beers. There was really nothing in between that. Uh, also, the craft beer concept in the US had really picked up. But in, in India, it was still missing. Uh, and he felt like, you know, can he disrupt otherwise a very staid 
uh, traditional rigid industry uh, with a better quality product, which is much more fun, appeals to the younger TG, give them more variety, give them what's more in sync with global trends uh, and disrupt the market. We thought that was a fantastic idea. And then, you know, Ankur had great brand sensibility. So even when the brand was very, very small, you know, he already had great thinking around uh, what would be the brand, the values, the ethos, the positioning, like who is the communication going to be addressed towards. So I think that part of the um, thinking was, it was, one can say that it's super early, but he had thought through all of those details right at the start. Uh, we loved that. We felt like uh, in our mind, you know, we felt that was very, very disruptive. Uh, and that's the reason we kind of leaned in, backed him at the early stage and continued to back him through his uh, journey and success. I would say that, yeah, that's one fantastic example where, you know, really a business was built with a sh- from a sheer idea into a very, very defensible business. Today, it's counted amongst the top premium uh, craft beer brands in India, um, you know, growing really fast. Uh, so we're very happy investors there. So, you know, beer obviously is a is a slightly more obvious kind of market, right? It's very easy to measure. There's enough data that's out there. Uh, maybe if, uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, say, for instance, apparel brands or beauty brands that you may have sort of, you know, uh, uh, picked up or that or that you've evaluated or, you know, or just admire, uh, which may have started in slightly more non-obvious markets, uh, but end up creating a niche for themselves, which in turn ends up actually being a, a fairly valuable business opportunity. Sure. So maybe I'll take... Um, Mama Earth is an example. Uh, again, you know, we've been tracking, like beauty is a really attractive segment for us and we track it very closely. Um, so when Varun literally started up, that's the time like we intersected him and were chatting up with him. I think initially Varun started with baby care products and soon he decided that, you know, uh, these products are uh, being also used by uh, women in general. It does, doesn't have to be expecting moms. He extended his product portfolio and uh, in our mind, like that was a very smart thing to do. Uh, so, uh, you know, the team tracked uh, the progress of the company and stayed in close in touch with Varun. Um, and I think um, what happened there was really magic because, uh, you know, suddenly what what how he disrupted the beauty industry was, you know, with through through a very, very sharp and clear positioning, which was very honest. So he said that, you know, today all traditional beauty brands are offering you great products but they are loaded with chemicals. And, um, you know, my positioning is I'm a clean label, toxin-free product, which you can use not only for, you know, their products which are meant for your baby, an expecting mom can use them, and also women in general can use my product. Um, and I think what he did uh, was really build an element of trust. Um, and that particular positioning allowed him to differentiate himself from the rest of the market. So that was sheer disruption uh, and very out-of-the-box thinking as well. While this trend had already picked up in the US uh, and globally in general, but uh, there weren't too many brands who were bringing that concept into India. And I think he was one of the early movers and he had that advantage. Um, the second thing I think which you know he did very differently from the rest of the traditional brands was become, uh, launch purely on online. Uh, so he said, I'm going to build an online first brand uh, and I'll be an omni-channel brand, but focused on online and GT will follow at post a certain scale, if at all. He still continues to be an online dominant brand, growing very fast, uh, build a very commendable business. He's probably number one uh, amongst the brands in the online category listed in, in personal care, uh, or rather if not one, I would say amongst the top four or five brands. Um, growing really fast, 
he has a very very strong and defensible direct to consumer business as well um so i think that's one good example where uh, you know literally we've seen the entire journey of a brand of course there's a very long road ahead for varun uh, but i think uh, from the we've literally tracked the business from zero to its current scale which is which has been very very fascinating so let's talk a little about a little bit about product market fit because you know obviously as investors uh, you specifically you, you get in once a brand or a business has found some amount of product market fit right uh, so could you talk a little bit about you know what does product market fit mean uh, and also what does it look like uh, from a metric standpoint or even just a, a customer love standpoint sure so in my mind like i think product market fit means you know being in an a plus market with a product that can really satisfy the needs of the market because it's truly unique or built on some real consumer insight um you know when that happens i think the market pulls the product out of the startup uh, and that's what's happened with multiple um you know uh, brands that have got created multi in across multi categories i would say another way to look at it is uh, you know if you're hiring sales and customer support staff rapidly to manage a very large growing base of happy loyal customers and hopefully paying customers then you've arrived at product market fit so just to summarize i think like an a plus market combined with the real product insight and a great team is a winning formula uh for achieving product market fit um and i would say that you know we saw all these factors in the case of wakefit which is an investment we made a year and a half back uh this business kept growing like a rocket month on month and when we dug deeper to understand like what's really driving this uh, rapid growth for the business we realized that the consumer experience for a mattress purchase in india was absolutely broken a customer like think about it like a couple of years until a couple of years back a customer had to go into a dusty dealer store to pick a mattress from amongst and then choose from probably 30 to 50 sku's in a category which which is not you know it's not like they're very involved in that purchase so you really can't tell one sku from the other and figure out what's really needed for you um i think wakefit's value prop what we thought was fantastic was really simple and sweet they simplified the entire product offering into just two sku's created on the back of some real r&d also to add to that they offered the consumer great quality because they priced their product 25% cheaper than the regular mattress brands and they were able to do that because they didn't build the business through traditional offline channels where you have to give away a lot of the margin to the distributor to the retailer uh, so they passed the value back to the consumer i think uh, what they also did which was quite differentiated was really offer the consumer tons of convenience and what that really means is you know they were able to customize the mattress as per your bed size the customer just had to tell uh, their bed measurements and they would be able to customize the mattress very quickly it arrived at your doorstep in a very neat box packaging also they offered a 100 days uh, exchange policy so you know it was really the, uh, convincing a very convincing argument and sell because if you don't like it you can send the mattress back um i think some of these factors resulted in getting this nps for wakefit to almost 61 uh, we haven't tracked it more recently but uh, this is you know some this was an nps score with the company shared with us a while back 
and um, also when we went on to Amazon to check their ratings, it was 4.8 on 5 uh, on a base of close to 1500 reviews. Now that uh, back in the day was quite commendable. I'm sure today the number of rate, uh, reviews is a multiple of what it was back in the day. But um, yeah. you know, I would say th- these are some of the winning reasons uh, where, uh, which is a clear distinction or example as to you know how a company uh, discovers product market fit and probably to complete the triangle. Um, you know, I think the founding team was also stellar. It was. Um, it was a combination of two very strong co-founders, one with a product and R&D background and the other with the digital marketing and customer service background. So I think uh, just, you know, a very good, attractive, large market combined with a great product and based on a real insight and started up and backed by a very good founding team. Uh, and that's when magic happened. So, uh, you know, in chasing product market fit, right, there's always this conundrum that founders run into, which is, uh, is my business about acquisition or is it retention? So, for example, I'm assuming in Wakefit's case, it's all about acquisition, right? Because how often does a customer buy uh, a mattress? Uh, but for instance, in, in Mama Earth's case, I'm assuming it was more about, you know, acquisition, get more people to sample it, try it out. Uh, and build your base from there. Uh, so uh, how, how how have you seen founders, you know, strike a balance in between this kind of push and pull effect of, I need more customers, but I also need to make sure that, uh, you know, I retain the customers that I have because that's that's imperative in, uh, you know, in making, uh, in taking two steps forward in your journey towards finding product market fit. Yeah. So I think, look, um, at Sequoia, we love to back businesses that are, growing very fast on the back of new customers being onboarded and acquired. But I think nothing beats the importance of retention. Um, otherwise, you you will see that it's a very, very leaky bucket. Uh, and also they say that, you know, it's 5x more expensive to uh, acquire new customers versus retaining your existing customers. Um, I would say that, you know, retention for us is, uh, is, is super powerful. Uh, that's a metric which we track very, very closely for all companies, you know, within portfolio that we evaluate because uh, we feel that, you know, otherwise if you're not retaining your existing power users, your business will soon get converted into a treadmill business and have less strategic value in it. Uh, maybe let me give you an example, uh, you know, in, from one of our portfolio companies where there's been a very, very fine balance between acquisition and retention. So Go Colors is a great example. It's a women's bottomwear brand. Um, now, this is a business which is built largely on the back of their own store network across the country. And I think while every new store is an acquisition tool, but your existing network of stores, year and year, grow on the back of your loyal customers. And therefore, if you want to continuously keep growing year on year at a consolidated level, you have to make sure that you're retaining your loyal customers, you're bringing them back, you're servicing them well, you're providing them adequate variety, um, you know, you're giving them enough value to keep coming back to your brand uh, so that your existing network shows you know high sssg but at the same time you cautiously continue to open new stores so that you you uh, deepen your reach to new set of customers and that acts as your acquisition tool i would say another very good example for the industry uh, is nika uh, Nike is a great mm. example where probably they have the most sticky customers where probably they come back to purchase their beauty requirements multiple times a year 
So, you know, we yeah. feel like retention should be your North Star. And uh, it's more relevant for uh, categories across apparel, beauty, health supplements, beverages, um, you know, really where there is tremendous repeat purchase behavior. Let's take the example of Nike, right? Another company that I'm sort of fascinated with. I think, uh, uh, and, and I don't know about you, but I think they've done such a great job of using content as a moat, right? To drive that amount of like repeat purchase uh, and everything from their, you know, influencer tie-ups to just the way they do their social media. They've done a really crack job of, you know, creating content as a moat. Uh, could you perhaps talk a little bit about, you know, what are the different modes that have been created by different companies? Uh, you know, like you said, I think for Mama Earth, maybe it's their uh, direct-to-consumer, uh, basically sales going directly from their website to consumers uh, with Go Colors. Like you said, it was, you know, it's the same same store sales generated. So could you talk a little bit about how, you know, uh, founders and companies should think of their moats? Because that, again, is a is a critical part of finding PMF. So I think, uh, you know, moats have also, the definition of uh, what our moats uh, ha- have actually evolved and changed for consumer companies. Uh, so if you uh, thought about it in the balance of the earlier traditional companies, you know, HUL, PNG, Marico, ITC, the big giants, their moats were tremendous or vast distribution network going across to almost 10 million GT outlets. And also their, their stronger brands being powered by at least 100 to 200 crores of advertising budgets. Uh, and that's how, you know, I think for those kind of companies and brands, that those were the moats. Um, now, this is a perk that can only be enjoyed by brands that come from the stable of large established companies. But I would say what's relevant for young startups um, are quite different. And I think moats have therefore evolved. Um, therefore, if you have to think about, uh, you know, what are the moats for some of the new age companies that are being built on the back of online channels or more niche channels like modern trade, uh, in my view, some of the new new age moats would be um, continuous product innovation and your speed of innovation, uh, your speed from innovation to launch of the brand. And that's important because, you know, most of the age-old brands were selling to the general trade outlet, which had very limited shelf space. And therefore, you you if you had uh, one great product, you doubled down, you created lots of distribution, lots of brand, uh, brand pull, and you would be able to grow very fast. Today's uh, young brands are not limited by that constraint because if you're selling online, and this holds true for categories which have very high online penetration. So if you're able to use online very effectively as a channel for distribution, uh, I think uh, continuous product innovation can be a huge, huge mode because uh, you know you don't you're not restricted by the limited shelf space. You can continuously launch newer newer products as you see new trends, new insights because consumer habits are also changing and evolving and consumers hungry for more variety. Uh, you can continuously yeah. launch new products and I would say differentiate yourself and that can be a continuous flywheel for you. Also, brands have figured out uh, how to crunch timelines on uh, timelines for new launches and how to f- get their products out in the limited but in within limited budgets as well. Like every launch doesn't have to cost you tons of money. Uh, you know, brands have figured out that how every incremental launch can be done within a very tight budget. Uh, if it fails, you quickly retract and pull it out and it's all good. Um, 
I would say uh, innovation is equally important for the more traditional businesses, which don't, which really can't sell themselves on online or don't have that access to online channels because they're largely more relevant for the offline world. Um, and maybe I'll point towards again another Sequoia portfolio company, uh, Indigo Paints. It's a great example. You know, Indigo is a company Sequoia backed when uh, it was a very very small company, probably sub ten million dollars. And the largest player in comparison had revenues over $2 billion uh, of revenue. So, you know, the back that company simply because we felt like there was a business being built purely on the back of innovation. Uh, it was a company which was which had uh, invented new set of products. So they had their first hero product, which was metallic paints, uh, which is used on the rooftops of homes. Uh, and then the second hero product they had was uh, tile coat. Uh, this is again a product which is used at the front entrance or the porch of your homes. Uh, and they realized that Kerala is a very attractive market. Not only is Kerala a very premium market for paints, but also in Kerala, people really like to spend on their homes, not only the interiors of the homes, but also on the exteriors of this home. So they launched these products in that market, saw immediate traction, um, and you know, business was built. Uh, today, Indigo is probably the fifth largest uh, decorative paints company in India. Um, so I would say that's that's been a very commendable journey as well. So I think innovation should is is one of the strong modes a com- young company can focus and build over a period of time. Um, maybe also an example on your uh, innovation cycle and your time and you know your speed to launch i think some of some brands like say a hector a health cart mama earth are great examples these are very agile companies who are continuously listening to consumers and the changing needs of consumers and you know therefore they are best tuned and because they also a large part of the business is online enabled they can quickly respond i would say the sec in my mind like a very strong second mode is uh, customer love. It's very high. It's highly underrated and underestimated, but uh, it can be a huge mode. Um, and think about, you know, there are tons of brands being created in India today without spending much on marketing. And you still, still see the product going viral. I think it's a great example again, uh, you know, built a very nice business with minimal marketing budget, simply just on the back of some of the, uh, you know, I would say, uh, value prop that they offered to the consumer, which was so differentiated. Uh, also, I think they overinvested in just servicing their consumers, answering every small to big query, very quick to respond if there was any uh, you know poor experience, and slowly but steadily they kind of built uh, you know a business on the back of sheer consumer love. And I think that is again a massive moat for new age brands. Um, I mean, finally, if you think about it, like great companies like Amazon and Apple are all built on the ethos of superior customer service and customer obsession. And, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about it in, uh, you know, in his present, uh, in his interviews back in the day versus even today to his, in his newsletters to all his shareholders that, you know, customer obsession is one clear virtue of the business. So I think customer love is uh, definitely a moat to be, uh, to be, uh, which is powering some of the young age companies. And I would say the third one is really distribution, new age distribution. So um, if you are in, if you are a founder in a category which lends itself very well to online, uh, online can be, online channel can be a huge mode for you. 
you know, you don't, there are no, there are no barriers to entry. You can, if you have a great product, you can get listed. Um, I think what most good brands try and work towards is really uh, get on, get into the best sellers in, in their category, um, you know, build up a very large database of consumer reviews, focus on customer ratings. Um, I think uh, build, building distribution through online channels, that can be an additional mode. So uh, I actually wanted to pick on customer love, right? Because the most uh, apparent metric of customer love, like you said, in the case of Wakefit could be things like NPS. Uh, but uh, again, like you said, customer love is so nuanced, right? Um, uh, and one could also argue that in a lot of industries, uh, over-indexing on customer love may not necessarily be what's needed. Uh, you know, uh, case in point, and I can say this, uh, you don't have to be controversial, but HDFC, right? Like not the world's best customer service, uh, but no one can take away from the fact that uh, that for them, um, you know, what they've been able to deliver on is, you know, speed, efficiency, uh, fantastic, uh, you know, customer acquisition costs. And most importantly, you, you know, your money is safe, right? Customer support may not answer, but you know, your money is safe. The point that I'm making is I think a lot of founders uh, uh, struggle with prioritizing what they pick, um, uh, you know, one over the other, right? Um, uh, it's, it, it, is, it is a struggle picking and choosing, especially when you're starting out and when you're in that, you know, pre-PMF stage or even post-PMF stage. Uh, in between, you know, what do I do? Do I release more SKUs? Do I invest in my customer support? Do I like list on Amazon? Um, how have you seen founders, you know, strike a balance in between all of these fairly natural conundrums to run into uh, and pick and choose what to invest uh, in? And also, how do you how do you figure out what that nuance about your business is? Uh, you know, that that key insight, right? Like you mentioned for Mama Earth, maybe it was something as as um, uh, as non-evident, but evident is just toxic-free products. Um, uh, how, how have you seen founders strike a balance in between the more, you know, non-obvious and obvious places to invest in? Normally, I feel like it's a little bit of serendipity. And um, the, each time that uh, Sequoia has in, intersected great founders and great businesses, we always feel that, um, you know, one big learning is that, uh, the founder is the genius behind the product idea. Uh, and that idea is always stemming from, you know, their personal experiences or from a need that they have felt, uh, you know. So I would say that uh, uh, whether, it's a, whether it's a Mama Earth or a Raw Pressery or a Bira, all of these products have been great ideas uh, which have really germinated in the minds of the founder. Either they, you know, they were beer lovers and had spent large part of their lives uh, overseas, and when they came back to the country, they were shocked to see, you know, what options they had. Or it can be Anuj, who's an extreme health enthusiast, and uh, you know, who who basically said that I don't have the time to make uh, juice, fresh juices at home, but there is absolutely nothing in the market that is sugar-free, that's clean label, that's good for you, um, and therefore, you know, started our propriety. So I would say that uh, a lot of these are very personal experiences, which uh, result in uh, very very strong business ideas. Um, so I feel that you know product market fit usually sits in the mind of the of the founder, and he he or she is always the genius behind it. Uh, but what happens is that once you have uh, hit upon uh, you know the business idea and you have launched and started up, it's really important that the founder starts to uh, surround himself or herself with uh, you know the right minds to build the brand to further evolve the brand or build it rather, create distribution, 
uh, focus on things like supply chain and also how do you continuously keep innovating around the product so that defensibility is always up um i think in in that respect like founders have to assess what are the priorities of uh, of their business what are the skills that they need to augment or amplify you know to achieve success and success can have many many versions right for some people success is revenue for some people success is uh, customer love for some people success is retention um, but uh, i think they have to recognize and maybe i can give you a few examples um you know where founders or rather what founders prioritized after they had found product market fit and therefore what did they choose to augment or build or scale up um you know as the first two three functions beyond uh, product um so i would say like let's probably touch upon a few examples the first in my mind that comes is uh, hector um now hector is a is a uh, basically hector's a parent company and their brand's name is paperboat and now they've also recently launched uh, their value brand called paperboat swing um i think for hector two things were very important uh one was sales and distribution and the second was supply chain and this was because you know this product needs all year round supply of fresh fruits um at affordable price points and also given it was you know the ambition was always to be a pan india national brand uh therefore and given the price points they felt like gt was the obvious distribution for them and to build a pan india distribution you know is not easy you need you need team you need great minds you need people with experience so for them the two things that where they built capability uh was around sales and distribution and supply chain in the case of wakefit they were really two very capable founders co-founders and they had a great product you know they knew the hacks around digital marketing they had started to see insane customer love but really what they needed to build very quickly was the backbone of service and therefore the first department that they actually augmented or hired for was customer service um because they were very sure that they wanted to delight their customer in the entire journey and hold them and uh, not have any unhappy customer because while this is not a category which lends itself to high repeats but uh, nevertheless word of mouth is super super important for this business um i would say in the case of uh, mama earth it was probably product development um because again you know um you if you want to expand and launch multiple new products you have to have a very robust uh, product thinking in house uh it can't be outsourced and if you definitely want to be a stand up and stand out brand you you know you can't have me to products you have to have very out of the box products which are really finding the niches in the market and uh, and blowing them up and uh, launching great products um the second uh, i would say area of focus for uh, varun at mama earth was online marketing because this is again a brand that was being built on uh, through the online channels uh, and therefore for him probably these were the two big areas of investment um and in the case of let's say a bira it was uh, decentralized manufacturing and a very robust supply chain because this is an industry which is uh, has very complex uh, government regulations it has a shelf life constraint also there is a logistics cost aspect so you know you need very steady uh, supply of, of and a very i would say consistent quality product um, think about it uh, one of the key ingredients for a beer is water 
and uh, water quality differs from what it is in North India to South to West to East. And therefore, uh, you know, just having a very, very robust manufacturing setup was one of the biggest investments Bira made. So I would say for different companies, uh, it's different set of things. Yeah, I, I would definitely not want to be a founder who has to worry about where to get water from. Uh, uh, no, but Bira has done a phenomenal job. In fact, we had Deepak Sina, the CMO of Bira, uh, on uh, Open House as well. And he just shared so many really, really interesting insights about beer as a market. And uh, and we'll get into that in just a bit. So, uh, you know, company, uh, you know, say company X, right? They found product market fit. They've raised like a shit ton of capital from Sequoia. Uh, what happens next? So how, how have you seen companies... Uh, you know, manage that sort of, you know, awkward middle stage, right, of, uh, of, of, of figuring out PMF, but then, you know, seeing how they really inflect um, uh, from a, you know, from a demand uh, a repetition, acquisition, etc. perspective. Uh, and actually, I think a company that I'd love to talk about, uh, if you're up for it, is uh, Paperboat, right? Because uh, like you said, they've launched Paperboat Swing, um, which is super interesting. And they launched Chickies and, you know, they, they, they just really found a way to diversify what their product had to, had to offer. So how have you seen companies, you know, sort of strike a balance in between going through that awkward middle where they are trying to hold on to their, you know, prior customers uh, who may be very different from the next cohort of customers that they're acquiring, uh, you know, to their company and, and their product? Yeah. Um, so I think the zero to one journey is really the hardest. Uh, and that's when you, you know, you have to manage multiple variables. Um, you constantly have to iterate, tweak, uh, you know, probably it's it, the hardest battles are fought in that zero to one journey. Um, my view is that our guidance to uh, our founders at, in that stage is to always stay focused uh, and that means is that don't spread your yourself and your bandwidth too wide. Uh, therefore, if you have hit upon a great product and there is product market fit, then just go hammer that one product and get it right. Uh, versus, you know, falling into the trap of saying that revenues can be built with multiple products very early in the journey. Um, so even for Hector, uh, you know, in fact, if you actually dig into Hector's history, the first product didn't do well. Uh, they had they had an energy drink brand called Zynga, uh, which was probably too early for the market. Uh, India wasn't ready for that product category. And Paperboat was a side experiment that was happening in literally, like I would say, the backyard. And Neeraj's thinking around that was, you know, that uh, we've all... And he felt that his generation had grown up drinking Ampanna, Jaljira, Nimbupani. And today, all those habits were, you know, those products or those options had completely disappeared because, you know, grand uh, grandparents were uh, were uh, not around to kind of uh, bring back those age-old recipes. Um, you know, they, their spouses were leading very, very busy lives and therefore nobody really had time to go into the kitchen and make those, those uh, beverages for themselves. And he felt like, you know, why not hold on to that heritage and tradition of India? Because those are fantastic products with great health benefits as well. And, and uh, that was really the, I would say, um, the thinking around Paperboat, the brand. And what he, and over a period, and therefore he launched, you know, uh, Paperboat drinks across a bunch of flavors. 
some did well, some didn't do so well. So he was very quick to withdraw the ones which didn't do well. It's, you know, also we always like, Sequoia always advises its founders, don't fall in love with the product, like listen to the consumer. So if the consumer is rejecting a product, uh, you know, that's telling. Uh, it's better to just withdraw it versus continuously putting all your resources, make, trying to make it work. So that was, I think, one of the smartest choices which Neeraj made early in the journey. He uh, he launched a bunch of products, the ones which did well, he doubled down on those. Um, and the ones which didn't do well, he completely scrapped them and took them off. Um, but I think the question which you asked is around the product adjacencies as well, uh, which he built over a period of time. So as the brand grew, as the business grew, uh, he started realizing that, you know, ethnic uh, beverages is a great platform or other products built on past memories is a great platform and positioning to have. And it's very extendable into multiple other products. And that's how, you know, um, Paperboard Chikki came about. Um, so yeah, so that's that's been the journey for, uh, I would say, Paperboard. But from what we at least like, you know, some of the le- um, guidance that we try and uh, share with our founders is that, uh, you know, probably what do you prioritize? Because when you're young, you're like, everything needs to get get addressed and uh, lots of things to be done, right? So I think first starting point is obviously a great product built on insights. There's no substitute for that. Um, and really building an organization-wide DNA of continual innovation. That is the beauty of the more recent startups. I think that's what's changed in Indian uh, startup ecosystem today. Um, the second is, Define your customer persona very, very sharply. Like, who's your core TG? Um, That decision will allow you or give you clarity around how you should price your product. What should your marketing and communication strategy be? I think once that is sorted, um, you should you should think through and define your brand values and properties. And why that's important to do in the early part of the journey is because it will allow you to establish or have the clarity on what are the what's the brand and product architecture you want to build it'll also give you the clarity on what not to do like will paperboard ever launch a coca cola variant absolutely no uh, that'll never happen. So I think because he thought through the brand values and properties back early in his startup journey, uh, that gave him so much clarity as to what are the products he will absolutely never launch. Like, will he launch chips? Never. I don't think he will ever launch chips. Um, so it's important to have that clarity. The sec- I guess the next one is really distribution because to build revenues and scale and get and to be available um, you need to build distribution. But I think what founders should definitely try and avoid early in their journey is to go too wide. And that means is don't go target multi-channels. Like if one channel is working for you, it's better you deepen your distribution across that one channel and gain more market share in that channel. So if, you know, for more premium products, if modern trade is the most suitable channel, then it's better that you, you know, you make sure that you're present across all the relevant modern trade partners. You have the right uh, shelf visibility. You know, you have you have the option of even placing a promoter on store to catch the eyeballs. So I think uh, building distribution, but building it very intelligently and recognizing which channel works well for your brand um, can be a great starting point too. Like for example, uh, in GoColor's case, you know they realized that um, they were a young brand and 
a woman always focused on topwear like very seldom back in the day maybe like uh, six years back a woman really thought so hard about what she's going to wear below her kurti it was a, but at the same time you know this was a young company that was saying that hey we will revolutionize um, you know bottom wear as a category for women uh, and we'll make sure over a period of time that you know she gives it adequate importance so what was important for them to do was shadow some of the top uh topwear brands in ethnic in the ethnic wear category and they could have only followed that strategy through a ebo network so you know they identified who were the top 2 3 brands they wanted to shadow and they made sure that their store was co located uh and that's how they mm. came across you know uh and or rather came about thinking of ebo as their core distribution uh platform um also you know in ebos you can uh, you have a fitting room so a consumer can try more see the entire product range and that's how you know she will actually open her mind towards the category at large like she will actually experiment a little bit um i think women are fantastic customers to sell to uh, they love exploring they love to try new things um and gogalus was like hit upon that insight and you know they said that hey a store works beautifully well we feel that we can actually upsell and cross sell to our customer um so i think yeah, that those are some good examples um as to how to think about distribution strategy as well and finally i guess you know build higher well um i think quality is most important over quantity uh, very often you know uh, founders don't want to spend too much um so they hire multiple resources but our uh, our experience over the years has been that uh, just hire a few good folks that matter um but net net stay lean keep burn low resemble an nsg team don't resemble an army battalion Mm-hmm. no absolutely so uh, you know i think hiring is such a important point right because uh, uh, there's always this temptation to show off right like look at how many employees i have which i for the life of me can't wrap my head around but uh, but but how and and if you could maybe you know talk in terms of an example right how did you say for instance see bira's core team change uh, you know as they started scaling or you know any any company for that matter or, or even uh, uh, you know nike or or any other company how have you seen their core team uh, evolve especially you know like you said as you find those moats as you find those uh, innovations around product or distribution uh, could you talk a little bit about that uh, and and i know this is difficult it's difficult to generalize but uh, what are the kind of hires that you know in your opinion founders should just stay away from uh, up until you know they've hit um, certain milestones uh, internally or externally I would say that um, you know you have to be really like uh, careful from the 0 to 40 50 crore uh, revenue journey uh, about who you hire and therefore you have a founder should prioritize uh, what are the key functions that are relevant to their growth um, and what are the key areas that they need to debottle um, and obviously a founder needs uh, good minds so the first i would say advice sequoia always gives to its founders is um, hire folks that are smarter than you like um, don't gather a army of people who are you know um, basically just agreeing to what you say you need people who can challenge and stand up to their uh, point of view like who have a point of view and can stand up uh, and defend it uh, and even if that means sometimes opposing the founder um, that that's the kind of person you should hire uh, now that takes a lot of courage uh, because um, that's not easy to digest right uh, so i would say that uh, that's that's one guidance we always give um second is that uh, for a young company 
to attract good talent, uh, you know, it's salary is one thing, but I think the other lever to use is ESOP. And uh, therefore, you know, advice has always been to founders that create generous ESOP pools so that you can actually go ahead, hire the right set of people for your business, uh, and you can attract them with nice ESOP. Um, and I think today the environment is very, is very, very ripe. People understand the value of ESOP and therefore your ability to attract that kind of talent will always be very high. I would say uh, cultural fit is something which is really important to keep in mind when you're making these hires. Uh, so one of the no-goes is like, if you if you feel the person you're hiring is fantastic in from a skill set perspective and experience perspective, but you think that person is not going to thrive uh, in your culture or in your business environment, don't go for it because you know it's literally uh, that person's going to be a fish out of water. Uh, we'll try very hard. I mean, but it's not the the synergy is never going to happen. So uh, make sure that you give enough importance to that aspect, um, and that's why like you know. I, I remember like Neeraj used to, from Paperboard, used to think like hundreds of times before hiring, making any senior hire because his only worry was like, will my culture, will the culture of my company get uh, disrupted or, you know, will they, uh, like, Will it will will I be able to retain the culture even with this new hire? So uh, back in the day, like uh, you know, when you're in the haste to build the business, uh, you don't fully get it. But when you reflect back after so many years, you think there was so much wisdom in those words and that thinking, and that's so important. Um, I would say that one one uh, one more thing to add is um, you know from the the people who work with you from the zero to 50, let's say fifty crore journey uh, could be a very different set of people uh, versus the folks who are with you from the fifty to let's say thousand crore journey uh, and these are two very important phases so uh, no disrespect to the folks who are with you in the first phase versus the guys who are with you in the second phase um, and maybe Bira is a great example since you also spoke about it uh, you know the early part of the journey if you looked at the uh, at the core team it comprised of very young and energetic people uh, but they were not from the industry uh, they were from very very different backgrounds uh, but this team had like raw passion, hunger, and, um, you know, obviously the there was a very distinctive product offering and, uh, you know, everything put together, the company was able to go very fast, grow really fast uh, in the first uh, two years uh, since its launch. But what changed is that at some point, uh, Ankur realized that the next wave of growth will require, you know, a team from the industry um, that had the execution, not only had the execution chops, it's not like the earlier team didn't have the execution chops, uh, but the new team would require the similar execution chops, but of also the guys who have fought this battle day in and day out. So the guys who are from the industry, who understand the nuances, and therefore are in a better position to firefight on a daily basis. Uh, and therefore, hmm. uh, you know, the senior team that he's attracted today is a very different set of folks. Uh, most of them are really, um, you know, people who've had prior experience in Alcobev who have come and now, you know, helping uh, them charter their journey. Uh, so, uh, Sakshi, now we'll sort of segue into our audience questions. Everyone's, uh, you know, been here. Uh, they've been, uh, I'm sure, sending us a bunch of questions. So, she'll just shoot a couple of them your way. 
and then I'll circle back at closer to six uh, for for a few final uh, rapid fire rounds. Uh, Asa, all yours, ma'am. Thanks. Uh, okay, so f- I'm going to dive into uh, COVID because that's sort of been everybody's uh, you know so point. Uh, everybody wants to know like I mean fundamentals don't change, but has COVID shifted the axis a little bit? Uh, at Sequoia, are you looking at companies differently now? And if you are, what is it now that has changed? No, I think uh, COVID has, uh, what it did uh, was, um, I would say, create a lot of turbulence for our portfolio uh, in the month of uh, March, April and May. And that was an industry-wide phenomena. Uh, so a lot of the energy and uh, time was being spent really supporting portfolio uh, the, working with founders to think through, you know, their uh, burn and how to extend runway. Um, so I think that was uh, that was probably the heavy lifting that was being done uh, at Sequoia for those few months. But okay. from a future investment standpoint, nothing changes. I think uh, you know we are the, one of the we are one of the few funds who've been around longest in the India market. Uh, you know our commitment. It remains the same. We've seen multiple down cycles. I think this is uh, just another turbulent time and the space shall to pass. So nothing so really North changes. Stars North stars still remain the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So Adarsh asked a really interesting question. He said, um, for startups that are based out of tier two and three cities, right, it's slightly harder attracting talent. Um, is that something that, you know, you have seen at Sequoia or you think, uh, you know, it's just a matter of like just having a great product? No, I think it's a, it's a, a it is a real challenge. Uh, you know, we've seen that happen. Like we've back businesses based out of Jaipur. Uh, back in the day, even Chennai wasn't uh, really a hub for talent. Uh, but we backed businesses out of Chennai. Um, let's say also a few other remote cities as well. Uh, it, it It is a fair challenge. There are two options. You can either, um, I would say, move your product and tech team into a, probably a you know, base, which is uh, some of the metro cities where it's easier to attract the talent. Or I would say, look, uh, you know, build a le- really good stellar team. You don't need too many good people. Uh, you need a few smart minds, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board and figure out like, do you have a generous seesaw pool? Do you have a very compelling uh, value prop for employees? I think uh, some of those factors could be very compelling for talent because I think today talent is very, very mobile. Um, you know, earlier it was like Bangalore or Delhi or Bombay were the only hubs. But I think today talent is very, very mobile and people are willing to shift cities. Um, so it's not as big a dis- disadvantage in my mind uh, as it used to be five to 10 years back. Got it. Okay, uh, Alia, I'm going to take your question next. You had a really interesting question about if you could throw some light on how data is analyzed at Sequoia, right? So um, when you're like looking at decisions, when you're looking at what to invest in, industry benchmarks, right? What really goes uh, in on there? Sure. So, you know, the work starts with uh, with the market assessment. Um, you know, we go very deep in understanding really how, you know, what's the size of the market, what's the addressable market for this business that we're evaluating, uh, what's the competitor lands, uh, comp- sorry, competitive intensity, what is the relative market share of the company that we are evaluating, um, you know, are they moats? 
in a, in the business, you know, uh, within the industry that we're evaluating that can be built? Is it a defensible business or not? We look towards public market data to help us answer some of those questions as well. Um, and I think when we go deep into evaluating the company metrics, there are the standard financial metrics that we that we all look towards. It's not only common to Sequoia; it's a you know, it's it's a standard playbook. Um, that one uses. So the standard financial metrics and the business metrics, which really matter. Um, and I would say something which at least at Sequoia, which we pay a lot of attention to is really the team. Are we backing an, the, you know, an A plus team? And that really matters because uh, for us, I think, uh, like I had earlier said, like magic only happens when you have a great product in a great market but also backed and run by a great team. So we want to be sure that we're backing the most high quality minds and teams. Got it. Okay. Um, Siddharth has asked this question that Steve Jobs said that people don't know what they want unless you show it to them, right? So uh, how do you avoid the risk of people not wanting your product after you have shown it? And then the- <laughs> then we don't have product market fit. <laughs> Got it. So I think so that, that should answer your question. That was short and sweet. Okay, I'm going to take uh, one last one, um, which is uh, sort of been a common theme, uh, you know, again, across a lot of questions that have come in. Where do you see the maximum resilience coming in in India? So there's been a lot of, you know, conversation about China-backed production, manufacturing getting hampered. What are you seeing as resilient points in India? And what is the sort of industry you think will come back really strongly? I think all businesses will come back quite strong. Uh, this is a this is just a short term blip. Um, but what uh, founders and teams have to be ready to do is really wear the armor and uh, be ready to fight the next few quarters out because obviously the economy has shrunk um, and therefore it's not going to be easy for for any of us, right? For all businesses will get impacted. So what you have to prioritize is really uh, you know rationalizing all possible costs. So just squeeze out all the fat from your business and make sure that you're a lean, mean fighting machine. Also just extend your runway, uh, you know, make sure that you, you're being able to secure at least the next the runway for the next few quarters um, so that you know you can actually focus when the business comes back um, you know you can focus on uh, day-to-day operations versus actually firefighting for capital uh, and some of the calls that you take today will will really help in uh, in in uh, securing the long-term future of the business I think this is also a great time um, while, of course, there's panic across the board and, you know, uh, there's a lot of firefighting that's going on. But I think this is also things are stabilizing and normalizing. And we're seeing a lot of like uh, um, we're seeing a decent demand uptick in the months of June. Uh, even July has started off with at a decent pace. Let's see how it goes. But um I would say we see reasonable demand coming back. Um, so now that you know the um, a lot of stability is slowly creeping back into the into the ecosystem, uh, it's a great opportunity for founders to take a step back and think about the long term strategy and future of the business. Uh, think you know because when you're going about uh, firefighting on a day to day basis and running your businesses, you don't really get time to step back, think, reflect. Uh, speak to your consumers, um, figure out what's working, what's working for your product, what's working for your business or not. So I think this is a great time to internalize, strategize, and be ready for 2021. 
when things fully come back. Got it. So I'm all done. All yours. First cross, man, for things fully coming back. Um, okay, I have three quick questions for you. So first off, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been incredible. Uh, I think definitely one of uh, you know uh, one of my favorite uh, points that you brought up um, uh, was uh, was about that example you gave of indigo, right? Where uh, sometimes it's it's even about uh, going after the non non obvious markets or non obvious product lines. That example that you gave of uh, uh, you know uh, the, the 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 top coat on tiles uh, and metallic. quote on roofs that's super super interesting so thank you so much for sharing all of these insights um i'm going to keep it really quick uh, this will be a mini rapid fire round that i just thought of uh, so first question for you what are the companies outside of your portfolio that you love uh, they could be from india outside of india wherever but but what are the companies that you absolutely love i love uh, nike uh-huh. i think uh, very very special <laughs> um let's see which one else uh I think um, Wow is a fantastic brand. Yeah. These are two which come instantly to my mind. So, so beauty and skincare. Uh, for for those of the beauty and skincare founders uh, on on the on the chat today, uh, get in touch with Sakshi. Okay, a trend. So you know, you spoke about a uh, paperboard uh, tapping into nostalgia as a trend. Is there any other trend that you uh, you know are are pretty bullish on, or or at least you know, or alternatively even consumer cohorts that you're uh, excited about? I think look uh, the world is moving towards uh, being more healthy fit um you know and literally applying what's what they can eat on their face as well mm. so um you know there is uh, I would say there there um, there is a huge opportunity for brands to get created not only in beauty clean beauty um but healthy eating so clean label food and beverages uh, i think there is tremendous opportunity in uh, nutritional products supplements uh, these are some of the emerging trends uh, i think uh, another very interesting trend that will come about is pet care in india so that's a growing market with very high online adoption uh, so that's again a very exciting category and last question which is what are the books you recommend podcasts you like or just you know places where you where you learn from you know i have more books by my bedside than i get time to read <laughs> so like i have not been able to keep pace <laughs> <laughs> so some which are uh, currently on my bedside are uh, ikigai um trying to discover what i love to do also another one is difficult conversations <laughs> another one which i'm reading is the upstart uh, which is really the journey of airbnb and uh, uber and uh, i i love reading about uh, indian history so the anarchy is another one which is sitting on my bedside oh, awesome <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that and thank you so much for being here uh, this conversation was fantastic for everyone who's here you can catch this conversation uh, on uh, a podcast nearest to you in the next week or so we'll be posting this video on our webinar app as well so make sure you download lbb uh, and you check out uh, and the relay of this conversation there our next guest actually is varun from mamaearth uh, so he's going to be yeah so he's going to be chatting with us uh, two weeks from now uh, and after that we also have kusha kapila who will be talking to us about uh, influencer marketing uh, and really how brands can leverage uh, influencers and content create leaders uh, to drive reach so lots of fun conversations coming up on lbb's open house uh, download our webinar app for more uh, that, that's it from us thank you so much sakshi we really appreciate your time uh, and thank you so much to everyone uh, for joining us and we'll catch you at the next lbb open house thank you sakshi thank you it's been a pleasure bye bye so much bye bye